I was uh, thinking kind of, how do you go into this? And so we've really hit on the subject of hypocrisy two weeks in a row. And so coming back at it a third time, it's just always joyous. Everybody loves to talk about hypocrisy, especially when we're finding it in other people and not ourselves. <clears throat> but just know that when Jesus began this section in chapter 6 and verse 1, he was addressing something that is completely... It's just, it, it wants to be happy and at home in our hearts, okay? Hypocrisy wants to be happy and at home in your hearts. The enemy, enemy wants it there, and it wants you to desire the praise and adulation of those around you, your wife, your spouse, your friend, a uh, random person who just likes your post on social media. And so it wants you to, to like and desire those things more than you desire to be a servant of Jesus, more than seeing yourself bringing him glory and honor. That's kind of the battle that we find ourselves in. I think the difficulty for me as I've kind of looked at this and thought about this is it's, it's kind of the phenomenon that anytime you go to a parenting conference or a marriage conference or just a, a conference or you read a book and you're just really kind of convicted and, and they lay out a dozen principles or, or two dozen things that you need to do. Uh, my life and my kind of you know, overly obsessive way of thinking about it, I begin to just kind of move through this process of, I just need to lock this up, and I need to move to number two, and to number three, and to number four, and to number five, and then somewhere around number six, I forget what number one was, but I'm faking it really well, right? And so then I move on to number seven, and number eight, and now I've forgotten what two and three were, and so I'm still faking it really well. Whenever we kind of find ourselves guilty of this accusation of hypocrisy, is exactly at the point where we begin to fake that we have all of this other stuff figured out. The posture of a Christian is not someone who is perfect. It's not someone who is leading other people around them to see them as perfect. This is why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. When we see ourselves as broken people serving a perfect Savior, there is no need for hypocrisy. But if we see ourselves as perfect, if we see ourselves worthy of the praise of those around us, and if we feed off of that, then hypocrisy will always have a happy home in your heart. So Jesus began, and he began to systematically move through these three areas of Jewish piety that were just commonplace in the first century. And so he starts with the idea of almsgiving, of, of giving money, of giving your tithes, of giving your offering. And so he recognized that for many in their community, to be righteous, to be perceived as righteous, you give money to the poor, you give money to the church. And when people see that in you, that's a validation that you're moving in, in line with righteousness. But soon we begin to want them to perceive that we are instead of actually pursuing righteousness. So we address kind of giving, and then he moves over and he describes prayer. And so prayer is this intimate connection between us and God, where we are stuck in the here and now, and we're communicating with this transcendent God who is over everything, who's sustaining everything, who's keeping our bodies together and the very expanse of the universe together. And so we have in prayer this amazing opportunity and privilege of communicating directly with him, not through this, this priestly intermediary of some man, but we communicate through Jesus and through his blood and through his sacrifice to the creator and sustainer God of all things. So the amazing thing is that even in prayer, we have the possibility of becoming hypocrites. 
We want people to be wowed by the kind of this oratorical flourish that we throw on there. Or maybe it's just the frequency of prayer. Or rather, what for many of us it is, the frequency we describe our prayer. Prayer is an intimate bond between you and between God. It's not something that you use to gain status. It's not something you use to grow in stature among those around us. And as long as we desire it to be used as a vehicle for that, hypocrisy has a happy home in our hearts. Now, the interesting thing for us is that we recognize we still give to nonprofits, and, and some of you, you even give to this church, and, and so we recognize, that was, that was, anyway. <laughs> it's true, though. Some of you do, some of you don't. And so we recognize that, you know, we, that giving is still an important thing, and that prayer is this thing that when you come into faith, that, that prayer and your communication with God is vitally integral. It's like being married and never talking to your spouse. It's just something we wouldn't think about. But when we come into the idea of fasting, it's just far and removed from our context. And so fasting for many of us is I was too busy at work and I didn't eat lunch, right? And then your, your spouse, your friend says, you didn't eat. You said, yeah, but I prayed. So that's really kind of a lunchtime fast. That's not what he's talking about. And so some of what we're going to have to do today is to begin to unpack what, what Jesse did so well a couple of weeks ago in Sunday school when he taught on fasting. But for those of you who aren't here, we're going to kind of repackage that and talk about that in short form. There are great resources if you want to, to learn how to fast and kind of incorporate that in your life and your spiritual disciplines, and, and that's not what this is. That's not what we're doing this morning. I can point you in those directions, but we recognize that fasting should be an integral expression of worship in the Christian life. Our worship should have a component of it, which is fasting. Some of us, for health reasons, we can't fast. Some of us, we have body image issues and, and not eating takes an unhealthy direction and you shouldn't fast because of what it means for you. But for the average Christian, fasting should have a normal representation and rhythm within your life. And so what Jesus gives us in 16 through 18 is a description of what that fasting should look like and, and, and what that fasting absolutely should not look like. So he comes in and, and recognize this. He presumes that we fast. And so he says, when you fast. When you fast. It shouldn't be an irregularity. It shouldn't be something that Christians say, well, well uh, what is this idea of, of not eating for extended periods of time? I've never heard of this. Because from Jesus' perspective and point of view, this should be the natural rhythm in the Christian life that we do fast. And so Jesus then begins to kind of describe something that was somewhat of a phenomenon in the first century of, of what it was like when people fasted. So he says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. And so you have these guys who are wearing this kind of standard mode of dress. And so they're dressing themselves, they're casting their bodies in such a way that anybody that saw them could recognize that they were fasting, Right? So I remember one time I was in college and I'd been, I'd been fasting for an extended period of time and I hadn't told my roommates anything, hadn't said anything about them. And I'm driving in the car with my roommate and he says, bro, are you fasting? And it's like, what? man, I don't, like, I don't think this is appropriate to talk about. And I, you know, I just, and so I'm trying to hedging around this and not talking about it. He said, look, your breath reeks. <laughs> and so you've either abandoned brushing your teeth for days or you're fasting, or you really need to see a doctor because it's kicking. 
And so, and so we recognize that one of the things that happens to us in fasting is severe, acute, bad breath, right? And so I wasn't demonstrating that. I'm over like, hey, how's it going? How are you? It's, no, I said I'm gonna go it. We're just riding in the car and just two guys driving down the road. Who, one of them, him, doesn't always have great bodily hygiene, so I have no idea how he figured this out. But what, it, what they would do wasn't just going around and being a close stalker who's like, hey, how are you? <sighs> the very clothes that they're wearing and the look on their face and everything about them demonstrated that they're engaged in a spiritual practice and in a spiritual discipline. And so what they do with their clothes, and so they reach over and they kind of grab the arm of their, of their shirt and they begin to tear it and they grab some ash and they rub that ash in their face and they let their hair be all disheveled and they just give up on bathing. And so they're just kind of walking around like this number. Ooh, oh, oh, oh. And somebody looks at it and they're like, all right, let's see. Uh, torn shirt, dirty face. Whew. You're fasting, aren't you? Nobody had to guess. Everybody that saw them knew what they were doing, and it's solely based on the way they carried themselves. And so we see this over and over and over again. There's a standard dress. There's a standard manner in which people would fast. And so what kind of came into vogue in this idea that Jesus is addressing of if you fast so that people see you, observe you, look at you, there's no true reward for you. If you horribly disfigure how you look and you're constantly talking about it, there is no reward for you. They solely do it so that their fasting may be seen by others. And so Jesus says, amen, I truly I say to you, they have received the reward. The praise of man. It's your spouse. It's yourself. Some person who who just kind of sees a post that you've made and they say, oh, you're such a holy and a righteous person. I can't believe you're doing this. Those things are fleeting and are gone the moment they're extended. If we live for the temporal praise of men, if you live for the, the warm fuzzies that it kind of engenders in your stomach, if you live to be recognized by everybody around you, you cannot be living for God. And the perspective you have it's not a Christian one, but it's a very natural one. So we get into this idea then, what should Christian fasting look like and, and what is fasting kind of directed at? So I want to just kind of pause on going through this just to look at a few things. One of the things that is just a really instructive verse out of Joel, Joel 2, 12 and 13. God's talking to the people. He's talking about them kind of coming back to him so he says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. So he wants the people to fully return to him, not just in what they say, not just in what they do, but he wants their heart. And God wants your heart this morning. So he says, I want you to return to me with your whole heart. And look how he describes it. He says, it's with fasting. It's with fasting. And so one of the ways we see, especially within the Old Testament, of how people kind of realigned their heart towards God was, was no longer eating. They would stop eating. They're fasting. So he says, return to me with your whole heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Outwardly doing something to our clothing, which is totally appropriate in the first century and a little bit weird now, 
But outwardly doing something to their clothing was not an indication of where their hearts were. It was an indication of how they wanted to be perceived in community. If your display of righteousness before God is done in such a way as to only ever be observed by people out there, and that's what you're looking for, then your heart is not pursuing him. Now, within the Old Testament, they would primarily fast for uh, remorse and grief. So remorse, and so there's some sin that's kind of strapped everybody in the nation. There's a, there's a, there's a, they, they've been disobedient collectively to God, or they've been disobedient as individuals to God. And so a prophet would come along, or a man of God would lead them into fasting. And so what are they doing in that? They're seeking to tune their heart to the response of God uh, that he, they presumed it to be the response of God based on their actions. And so they're fasting. They want their heart to be aligned with God or grief. After Saul dies, the King Saul dies, they fast because they're overcome with grief. And so what are they doing in this? They're setting a time and a period apart to fast, to honor and to reverence the one who had fallen. You know, when we come into the New Testament, we see fasting happen in a, in a drastically different way. One of the reasons I would say that Christian fasting is different is because we have been forgiven. Do you understand this? We have been forgiven. And so the blood of Jesus is enough to cover your sins, your sins in the past, your sins of today, your sins of the future. And so fasting as a Christian to display or to, to earn the forgiveness of God has no place. You cannot add to the blood of Jesus by fasting. Now, perhaps God leads you to fast so that you might be broken to some sin. That's different. But if I know I have sin, if I'm cheating on my wife, if I'm doing something like that, and I'm thinking, man, I need to fast to add to the spiritual nature of my repentance so that God sees that and he doesn't bring any negative repercussions my way based on my stupidity and my sinfulness. I'm wrong, and I'm lied to. And maybe I'm lying to myself. So within the New Testament context, what we see fasting for is the creation of dependence and direction. Dependence and direction. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus is in this period of extended fasting and he's, he's arguing with the devil and he says, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on what? Man doesn't live on bread alone, Jesus is arguing with him, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so fasting has this very real sense that it's creating dependence in us on him. Because when we go without food, we have this natural built-in reality that is creating in us the hungry grumpies, right? And so our stomach begins to growl, our bodies begin to change, and it is alerting us that we need something. And what we do in fasting is use that something to be a reminder that our greater dependence is not on calming our stomachs and quieting the growling, but our greater dependence is upon God. And what we see over and again within the New Testament is in the midst of reminding them of this dependence, they would also seek out direction. So in Acts 13, before Saul and Barnabas or Paul and Barnabas are sent out, they give themselves to prayer and to fasting because they want to make a God-honoring decision. And so Christian, fasting has a very real and a very vibrant place in your life, or it should. 
Fasting is this vehicle God has given us to tune our hearts towards him and to completely remove from us the possibility that we believe that we are strong on our own. We get weak. We get tired. If we are this kind of control freak person who just is always able to to rein in our emotions, to rein in only yelling at people that don't matter, those things begin to be stripped from us, to be taken away from us. And we find ourselves having to move and deal with a heart that's completely bare and naked and stripped before our God. So he's creating dependence in us. He's showing us direction. But there's some things that absolutely fasting is not. Fasting is not the Christian approach to weight loss. It's not the Christian approach to weight loss. Man, there are a number of us that we need to lose some weight. We have been gluttonous. We have been lazy. And so we need to lose some weight. I'm just trying to kind of look in the the glass in the back. If I inadvertently make eye contact with you and you have some weight issues, hey, I'm sorry. (laughs) Mostly. And so some of us have just been gluttonous. We've eaten too much. Our God has been our stomach and everybody can see it. But what we need to do in fasting is not try and ascribe righteousness to the process. You not eating and losing weight is not the goal or purpose of fasting. The purpose of fasting is tuning our hearts to him that he might receive honor and glory, regardless of what physical benefit it brings us. Some of us, fasting for us, is the challenge that we need. You have grown lazy in your Christianity. You've been attending church, been coming on Wednesdays, you've been giving, but you have not done anything but go through the motions. Fasting will upend that because you will find yourself incredibly dependent upon God in the midst of that, and he will show you your laziness. And if you fasted, you get this. You're weak, you're tired, you're hungry, you got a headache, you've given up coffee, and let's not even talk about that right now. And so he's reminding you of your complete and utter dependence upon him. But it's not this idea of the next level Christian challenge. It's not one more tick, one more notch in your belt that you need to set up. Lastly, let me just address this. If you fast because you think it's going to change God's mind, then you misunderstand. You have some event you want to see come to pass. You have some reality you want to see be brought into truth. You want to see it come to pass. You have some person you want to change, and so you're fasting. You're praying, you're fasting, and this is what it is. You're praying that somehow, effectively, that through my prayer and that through my actions, God might be more inclined to do this thing. You cannot add to the power of prayer through Jesus. There's no display of religiosity and righteousness that will greatly enhance the effectiveness of your prayer to God. It's not going to happen. It doesn't work that way. Fasting is creating dependency and it's you reaching out for direction to God. It is not magical. Quit treating it like it is. Fasting is not some Christian incantation where the hungrier I get, the more I'm bending God's will to my own. 
It's as if some of us suspect that God sits in heaven. He's like, you know, I was not going to give him the job, but it's been two weeks and he has not eaten a single bite. And there was even that one day he went without drinking. He's really approaching righteous status. Really approaching it. I tell you what, if he makes week three, I'm, gonna, I'm just, I'm just going to give it to him. It, I, I'm just going to give it to him. We do not bend the will of God with anything that we do. He gives us fasting so that we might recognize our dependence upon him, not so that we might change him or his mind. Notice also, fasting is from food. Fasting is from food. You may abstain from other things, and some of you should, and perhaps there are some things I should abstain from. Facebook is not food. Social media is not food. The internet is not food. Television, in the midst of a, you know, an upcoming Super Bowl game and, and, and not watching that, is not spiritual. It may be good for you because you have zero self-control, but that is not fasting. Fasting is from food. It's this thing God has given us. It wasn't in creation. God said, you know what? I'm going to give them social media and television, and I'm just going to inundate them with all these things so that they can learn dependence on me by not using them. If, if you begin to have withdrawals from these things from not using them, this says something about your addictive personality, not about what God is creating in you. Fasting is from food. While I'm soapboxing, let me just say this one thing real quick. The modern way of doing this, you have these guys that go out and they disfigure themselves because they want people to see them and to praise them. What we have given ourselves is, is thumbs to do the same thing. People don't have to see me. They can read my characters. I've given up Facebook. I'm going to focus on more important things. Congratulations. Perhaps next time, what would be better is just to focus on those things and just quietly drift off. If you post things like that, if you write things like that, if our heart is so that people would see those things and say, man, that's amazing, so that it would be wowed and honored and enamored by our righteousness, there is no reward for you. There is none. Righteousness cannot be this thing that we primarily want to see recognized in us by those around us so that they would praise and glorify and honor us. Righteousness is us passionately pursuing Jesus so that when people see our lives, they hear what we say, they see how we spend our money, that they would come up to us and they would say, your God must be amazing because he has completely ordered your life. We never do it so that we can be praised, so that we can be honored, so that we can be glorified. We can only ever do it so that God might receive these things. Let us not confuse the place of the person who's worthy of glory and honor. It is not us. So he comes back, let's come back into this passage. He says, verse 17, he says, but when you fast, again, we recognize that it is incumbent upon the Christian to fast. He says, but when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. I think I was in high school the first time I heard this, and I thought, if I'm pouring oil on my head, all my friends are going to know I'm fasting. They're like, what's going on with you? Oh, you know, I can't really talk about it. It's a secret. <laughs> He's not talking about actually doing that for a 21st century audience. So what Jesus does is he begins to describe 
just this normal process people would go through to look like normal, ordinary people going through the normal, ordinary hygiene routine that would have been completely germane and ordinary for the day, right? So it's not like they're getting all perfumed up or they walk into the room and are like, whoa, like, did you bathe in that? What's the deal? He describes just going about your affairs, going about your day. So when he says, anoint your head with oil and wash your face, Jesus is really speaking directly to those who have disfigured their face. And he says, just be completely ordinary. Dress the way that you normally dress. Do the things that you normally do. Wear the clothes that you normally wear. Bathe yourself the way that you hopefully normally do those things. When you fast, don't let people be able to tell it based on the external things you do. Why? He says, it's that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who is in secret will reward you. Now, this has been the running commentary for each one of these things that Jesus has spoken to them. When we give, let our giving be done in secret so that our left hand doesn't know what our right hand is doing, so that our Father who sees in secret may reward in secret. And when you pray, you go into this room and you shut the door and you pray in secret so your Father who sees in secret may reward you. Then he comes to fasting. He says, fast in such a way that if anybody were to look at you, they'd have no idea what you were doing. They wouldn't know if you've gone one day, two days, or 30 days without eating. But God sees. And he sees how your heart is growing closer to his heart and your heartbeat is moving in line with his heartbeat. And he knows how difficult it's been for you and he knows the headaches you've gone through and he knows how close you've come to losing your temper and he knows how close you've come to abandoning the fast. But for you, you saw the pursuit of Jesus as worth it. So you forsook eating. And you gave yourself to this pursuit of God and you gave yourself to fasting. And your father who sees in secret, we are told, will reward us. All of these disciplines, giving, praying, and fasting. It's kind of the normal, everyday piety of the first century Jew. So Jesus gives us a picture that for them would have made great sense in their mind of this is what it looks like to pursue righteousness. And then he shows them how in pursuing righteousness, it can never be so that people would see you and praise you. But it's so that if someone saw you, that they would praise and glorify God. So the question becomes, what does it look like? for us to pursue these things. And I think Jesus gives us this wonderful picture of it in Luke 18. In Luke 18, Jesus sets up the scenario starting in verse 9. And he says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. If you're trusting in your own righteousness today, if you're trusting in your own goodness today, instead of the blood of Jesus and having faith in him, friend, then you're trusting in something that is not enduring. Then you're trusting in something that will fail you. And you're trusting in something that is false. And so the parable that Jesus extends to these people, he extends to you today. and He calls upon you to have faith and trust and belief in Jesus and in his righteousness in place of ours. So, so he's communicating this to a specific audience. So Jesus says, two men went into the temple to pray. 
One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, in those days, hearing this, they would have thought in their minds, I've got a righteous guy and a guy who, if I caught him in a dark alley and he didn't see me, I'd hit over the head with a club. I've got somebody who's righteous and somebody who's wicked. This is what they would have thought. So he said, they go into the temple to pray. He said, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, thank you that I'm not like other men. Thank you, I'm not like all these people who don't have their stuff together. Extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers. And then he looks over and he begins to catch eyes with this tax collector. He says, or even this tax collector. Then he begins to kind of run through his vita, the things that he has done, the things that make him righteous. He starts off, he says, I fast twice a week. Twice a week, this guy, for uh, for food, he didn't eat. He gave himself these hunger pains. I fast twice a week. I, I give tithes of all that I get. There was nothing this guy brought into his house or his business that he did not give 10% of. He was fastidious in his fasting. He was dedicated in his giving. 10% of everything I get. He's looking there at his life and he's presuming that all the things he he does make him justified and righteous before God. Our temptation, anytime we study and learn things, is to bring them into our life and make this assumption that it's the doing of these things that justifies us, that makes us righteous before God. But what we see in the response of this tax collector is the posture of righteousness. And it's the posture of the man and the woman and the child who's a true believer in Jesus and who can be truly used by him. Verse 13 says, the tax collector standing far off. This guy doesn't want to be near anybody. He's not liked by anybody. So he's distant and remote tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He stares at the ground. He begins to beat his breast this whole time. He's broken. He knows there's nothing righteous in him. He knows there's no amount of, of praying, of fasting, of giving that can make him righteous before God. So he's beating his chest. He has a simple prayer. God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. You have one man that stands assured of his righteousness before God because of all the stuff he's doing. You have another one that when he looks at his heart, he knows he is vile and wicked. He can't stand on any assurance of any good thing he's ever done. He's broken before God. And he cries out, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus tells us, Jesus tells us in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down from his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus Christ is high and lifted up. And he is exalted. 
and he calls all of humanity to worship him. He does not call us to be worshipped. The reason this section on hypocrisy is so incredibly helpful is because for many of us, it represents the possibility of tuning our hearts not to desiring the praise of men, but to tuning our hearts to desire that our lives be poured out as a sacrifice that our great God might be praised. Hypocrisy calls upon us to walk and to turn our back on everything Jesus stood for and communicated to us. The pursuit of righteousness begins with brokenness, not standing in front of everybody and telling them we're perfect. Let me pray for us. God, we confess this morning, it is easier to pretend to be perfect than to be broken. And it's so much more immediately satisfying for us. But God, would you take us back to being poor in spirit, to being broken, that we might display your righteousness Christ's righteousness as our own. Father, I pray for the unbeliever who is here or is hearing. God, that you would move in their heart, not to, that they would assume that there are things they have to do to get their life ready to come to know Jesus. But in placing their confidence and faith in Jesus, they would find themselves whole and complete and made righteous by his blood. God, would you strip away from us hypocrisy? Help us to be broken people ministering to broken people. Would you help us to walk in unity as we do this? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.